Thank you to our sponsor, Tony Overbay. He's a therapist and he's also the podcast host of one of the best podcasts around that I love, The Virtual Couch. I love Tony's podcast because I feel like I get free therapy (laughs) and I need my other therapy, but it's nice to have a little free therapy and he's got a great sense of humor. He is doing amazing work specifically in the field of overcoming pornography addiction. Please check out his course and a free ebook at pathbackrecovery.com and you can also check out his podcast podcasts and everything he's about at tonyoverbay.com. Welcome to I See You, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Welcome to the ICU podcast. This is episode 67, Protecting the White House, with Secret Service Officer Charles White. I noticed a couple ratings pop up this week on my app. I just want to thank you to everyone who has taken a minute to rate and review the podcast. It means a lot to me personally. A couple weeks ago, I was on a tour at the White House and I met the coolest Secret Service officer. He made me and the girls on my trip, he made our day. Before I turn over to that interview, I want to clarify just one piece of the story because it feels strange to not give you a heads up and context for this story. So as some of you know, I come from a large family. There are seven kids in my family. I'm number six, and I love all my siblings very much. I like to think that we have a pretty special bond. One of my siblings I'm especially close to, and that is my sister, Amy. She's number four. You first heard about Amy in episode one as my sister who took care of me after my first emotional breakdown, who had me live with her, and she helped me come up with the nickname of Delilah. She was our guest in episode three, being seen as a mother, where she affectionately told us about the story of getting poop in her hair. She's got the best sense of humor. She was also a guest along with my other sisters on episode 17, and there she shared a little bit more about her experiences battling cancer. And then in episode 34, her sweet husband, Ryan, was a guest, and he talked specifically about those years during Amy's cancer treatment and how he learned to receive. Well, there's been a pretty major development in their story, and most people who are close to them already know, but it hasn't felt appropriate to make some big announcement about it on the podcast. And I do have her permission to share this with you, but my heart is very broken. At the end of May, after a cancer screening, Amy was given the news that her cancer has spread to her liver and they guessed that she only has about one to two years to live. The reason I share this now is that this trip to DC was a very special trip for the women in my family. We made Amy choose the destination and we tried to make it especially special. She wanted to go see stuff from history. So we got to go to Washington, D.C. And I'm so grateful to Officer White for the role he played in this special trip. Here's Officer White. Agent Charles White, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joy. We met pretty recently. How did we meet? We met this past Tuesday, only three days ago, at the White House. I was working there, and you, you were on a tour on a big, a big girls' trip. Good memory. Good memory. (laughs) Yeah. We'll talk more about that. You were a lot of fun, but will you first start just by telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I am Charles White and I'm born and raised here in Washington, D.C. I have an older sister. I'm the baby of the family. And my dad taught in public schools in D.C. for over 40 years. And my mom was a counselor for women and their issues such as bad childhoods, or bad divorces. I went to college in New Jersey. After graduation, I had a degree in communications, but 
I couldn't find a job back home here in DC, half a year, applying to jobs, newspapers, TV, through radio. I couldn't find anything. And apparently I didn't have a face for radio, Julie. I don't know why. And uh, I said, well, I live in the seat of the federal government. So why not become a public servant? And I said, if I were to do that, I want to go law enforcement because I, I didn't want to have a desk job for 30 years. And law enforcement was, was more active. Applying for Secret Service would be great. I could tell people and the ladies that I hope to the president. And I applied in 2009 and I was able to pass each step. I had to get LASIK eye surgery. Really? I wore eyeglasses and contacts at that time and I was blind as a bat. I was 20 over 400. They want you to be 20, 20, at least 20 over 60. I was told that I would fail the uncorrected eye exam if I didn't have LASIK or PRK. I had LASIK and my parents paid for it, thankfully, and I did pay them back. And they wanted interest. They wanted 10% interest on, on the repayment. So thank God I had this job. <laughs> for the record, I have paid my parents back for their loan. It's all about business, Julie. All about business. It's all about business. <laughs> I was able to reapply. I got an offer. I went through the academy. I was six months long. Our first three months are in Georgia at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, down in Brunswick. And then our last few months are in Maryland at our own Secret Service Academy. Then I've been operational since the 18th of November, 2010. And so now I have nine and a half years on the job. Wow. So it's almost been a decade. Yes, yes. And my hobbies are dancing and singing karaoke. (laughs) That's awesome because we actually went to a karaoke bar when we were in Washington, D.C. Let's see, we met on Tuesday. That night, we went to a karaoke bar. (laughs) Which one? The Rocket Grill in Old Alexandria. In Old Town Alexandria, yeah. It was super fun. On King Street, yeah. Uh Yeah, 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 on King Street, yep. So that's pretty funny. That's cool. Talk to me about your job as Secret Service at the White House. What's that like? What does it look like? On a daily basis, our job is the interior and exterior protection of the White House and the access control. I am Uniform Division Officer. Now, the officers are all based in D.C., either at the White House or the Vice President's home, and he lives at Naval Observatory in uh, Upper Northwest D.C. or the foreign embassies. So that is all the embassies that are stationed in D.C., China, Israel, Pakistan, all that stuff. Our job is the interior and exterior protection of all three of those areas, as well as the access control. So at the White House, what we do is make sure that everyone who walks on the complex are authorized. They are either staff members, they work for the president, they are appointments that have meetings with staff who work in administration, or they are the press uh, or Secret Service, or they are tourists like you. Do you like your job? I do. I do like my job. Yes, yes. President Trump, have you met him? I have met President Trump, yes. I've shaken his hand as well. Said thank you for your service. It was nice that he stopped for five seconds to acknowledge my job and my service. What about President Obama? Did you have very much interaction with President Obama? Because you started under his administration, correct? Yes, yes. I was there for seven of the eight years under President Obama. I also did meet him, and I did shake his hand as well. So now I can say I have shaken the hands of both Presidents Obama and Trump. I was on post inside on Thanksgiving Day, and he came off of the presidential elevator, and he stopped and said, Happy Thanksgiving Day to me. And so to have President Obama the leader of the free world stopped and say, Happy Thanksgiving Day to me was super special. So I said it right back to him. All awkwardly, of course, I said, Happy Thanksgiving Day to you, sir. <laughs> but it, it was neat to have that, that moment. Very neat. 
So one of the reasons I asked you on the podcast was because I was just really impressed with our interactions with you. You know, we went into the White House and nothing against all the other officers, but everyone there is very stoic, it felt like. Very stoic and move ahead. I kept telling my sister, I hope this is okay, I'm saying it because you're not on duty right now. So I was like, I keep having the urge to yell bomb. Like, it's crazy. (laughs) I know, I wish everyone could see your face right now. I know. You know how you have those weird thoughts where you're like, what's the worst thing I could do right now? But because (laughs) because all these guys are there and anyways, um, I'm I'm glad you're laughing. I'm glad you're laughing. But I was just so impressed with what you said. So we were there and you didn't know this at the time, but my sister Amy is sick with terminal cancer and she's been given around a year or so to live. And so we had come to Washington, D.C. with her having planned that that's where she wanted to go for this this girl's trip that could be her last. She'd never gone to see a lot of history monuments or anything like that. And I think I said to you, like, you're so nice and you're so friendly. It's it's so fun to talk to you. And, and you said, well, you know, sometimes people can be antisocial, but you said, I always figure that I never know what's going on in someone's life. And so why not try to make their day? Do you remember what happened next? Yes. At first, we had taken a picture together, and then, because we were in the blue room, and you all wanted me to play this joke on her, and I was going on break then, so I had the time to do that. (laughs) Oh, I didn't realize that. That's so nice of you. Yeah, so... You weren't uh, just messing around during your time. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I I was was on on my break, so... I wasn't not doing my job or anything. I walked down the north side of the White House and then I crossed the room in the state dining room and I, I saw Amy after y'all had pointed her out. I said, ma'am, are you Amy? And so she said, yes, I'm Amy. I said, ma'am, I have to escort you out of the White House. We have found some, some issues in your background, check. <laughs> and followed right behind me, very serious. Then she told me as we were walking through the state dining room, well, hey, I thought that I saw you take a picture with my sister. So I, do you know her? And so then I couldn't hold on any longer for the joke because she saw us take a picture. So I said, oh, this is a whole big joke. Yeah, she told me, she said that she had seen us take a picture together and her thought was, oh, I bet Julie knows him from high school or something. (laughs) And which, no, I just sometimes ask random people to take pictures with me when I think they're cool. But but she said that when you were pulling away, she was pretty sure it was a joke. We had you do that to her because she is such a joker. She has the best sense of humor. But she said that there was a split second there when she was walking away where she was like, wait, there's no way this is for real, right? You won't meet a better person than my sister. She's just the best. But that was fun. That was a fun moment, a fun memory that you that you made on our trip together. So uh, that meant a lot to me. Because of those words that you talked about where you said that you never know what someone's going through. And you, of course, didn't know what our family is going through and uh, the meaning behind that trip in general. You seem like someone that has an understanding of compassion for others. How have you witnessed compassion and connection in your line of work? I have seen it. If there is a medical emergency on the White House tour, then all the officers and myself will rush over to the person who is ill to help them out, to get them water, to put them on a chair, on one of those antique chairs, to call for the White House medical office, <clears throat> doctors. And yes, that is a part of our, our job, but I think that the overall degree that we serve those tourists or staff members who are ill that speaks volumes and also if we are on the footbeats outside on pennsylvania avenue in front of the white house on east street behind the white house then we also show our concern for the public because we see people 
stumble off the sidewalk all the time by accident or they'll trip or they'll be on the scooters and they fall face forward on on the gravel sidewalk and or road and they need our assistance because their face is bleeding or their ankle is that sounds like something i would do <laughs> oh, 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 not. but uh they will call for the ambulance to come all that jazz so i would say that just seeing how my colleagues act in the face of issues that happen instantly showcases that they are compassionate and that they care about both adults and kids one of my coworkers. I brought her sister and her nephews on a tour, and her older nephew, he vomited on the floor of the state dining room. Oh, and, my goodness. Yeah, so instead of laughing at him or, or saying to my coworker, oh, hey, dude, why would you let him come in and he's feeling sick, X, Y, Z, I just took him in the back to hand him some water, have him sit down out of the view of the public because he was young, and so he didn't want to be embarrassed and whatnot. I just felt that that was the best thing to do, to not have him be embarrassed by strangers, pointing at him or taking pictures of him, X, Y, Z. So I would say that those are the things that I've seen as compassionate on the job. How did you get to be a compassionate person that plays pranks on people at the White House sometimes? Just kidding. I don't want to get you fired. <laughs> <laughs> I've been highly compassionate all my life. Um, long story short, I was bullied as a kid. I was always small. Still am small. Uh, I hated being bullied. It didn't feel good. I didn't know how to respond. I kept it secret for months and months and months. And it would only reveal itself when I, I told my parents that I didn't want to ride on the school bus anymore. Oh. I'd been bullied on the school bus. And they couldn't understand why, all of a sudden, out of blue, I didn't want to ride on the school bus anymore when I did it for so long and I had no problems. And then finally, I did tell my parents what was happening, how I'd been bullied. And it did get resolved at school. But... I just started to learn martial arts and, and such to be able to defend myself. But also, I stutter, and I have always stuttered since I was four years old, and that helped me learn strong forms of compassion because it is very tough when I'm the only person in my family that stutters, and they all speak normally, or what the world says is normal, and they don't have any issues with how fast or slow they talk, or they have to always think about what they want to say. I was taking deep breaths, X, Y, Z. And for me, I have learned techniques to be as fluent as possible. But as a kid, I had an awful stutter. I could barely say my name. Mm. And, and it has the harsh CH start. And that's you know, very hard. So for me, it was just having to be more open and be more respectful for all of our differences. Because everyone is unique. We're all different. And we all have our baggage. Over time, I pushed myself to be social. And part of the reason why I wanted to do White House tours was, one, I like history. But two, I wanted to challenge myself to talk to people every day at the White House on these tours because I didn't want to have my stutter define me or who I am. Yes, that's a part of me, but that one part of me cannot define all of me. I don't stutter nearly as much now as an adult as I did as a kid. And most of my friends and coworkers don't think that I stutter and that they say that I stutter so I can get some kind of financial benefits from the government. But <laughs> I don't get government, let me tell you. First off, I don't get any visibility for stuttering. I have gotten a whole lot more compassion after meeting folks who are a part of the National Southern Association, and that is a nationwide group of over 1 million people that stutter, and they have this annual conference every year, and they all come together, and it is wonderful to be around people who talk like you, who speak like you, who understand what it's like to stutter, and here in America alone, 
four million folks stutter at some level. And so it is not just some isolated thing. This is a whole lot of folks that stutter. Jones or Jones stutters, also Joe Biden. So who would have thought that the voice of Darth Vader stutters and the voice of Mufasa and the Lion King stutters? There are so many things about people that may not be aired in the open, but everyone's going through something. And so I think when I had told you, hey, thank you for your compliment, but I always try to be nice to people because I find that I don't know what people are going through and that everyone has a battle they're going through. I said that because I've learned a lot that I never know who I'll meet. I always have to have a positive first impression. I want to just show kindness because that is something that is lacking in the world today. I'll do my, my own part to help spread kindness and love. And I love how it hasn't stopped you. You have a successful job, a pretty high-profile job, at least to us here in Utah. <laughs> Very far <away. laughs> I'm sure in D.C. there's a lot of people with high-profile jobs, but I just, you know, I meet someone like you, and I can tell you've got to have a story behind it because you're so warm and open that way. If there's someone listening that is struggling, you know struggle, having been bullied, what would be your message to them? What would you have liked to be able to tell yourself when you were younger being bullied on a bus? Don't give up. Don't give in. This does not have to continue. You are valued. You are loved. You are more than your current circumstances. You are worth more than what might be happening in your life right now. You can move on, but you have to seek help because you can't do it alone. I've learned in life that no man is an island unto himself and you can't do anything alone. Life is all about having connections, having networking, because that's how we live. We, we make connections, we have networks, we have our family, we have our friends, we have our coworkers, and we have strangers. They're all, they're all networks. I was a stranger to you and just me being nice and me making jokes for 30, 45 seconds has turned into this podcast. And no matter how you feel that day, all of us had bad days, but the smallest act of kindness can really impact and change people's lives. What you do in this moment affects what will happen tomorrow. Again, if you are struggling, Seek help. It's okay to be in need of help. All of us need help. All of us are, at times, unable to figure everything out or to solve all of our problems. And so all that we know is not everything there is to know. There is always something new to learn. If you are having issues with outside forces like, like a bad marriage or a bad boyfriend or bad girlfriend, then there are outlets that are available, or if you have addictions like smoking or, or alcoholism, there are outlets as well. And so it's okay to seek help. There should be no shame in seeking help because we all are in need of help at some point in our lives. And so that just always takes me back to the 1970s song by Bill Withers, Lean On Me. We all need someone to lean on because we are not always strong enough to handle life on our own. All those networks that we have, like I mentioned earlier, family, friends, coworkers, all of those people can be our mast on our sailboats to help us redirect and refocus ourselves. Thank you so much. Well, you like to sing karaoke. I was hoping you wanted to sing Lean on Me. <laughs> what? I was hoping you'd just break into song. That's what I was hoping for. 
<laughs> I figured I would be somewhat <laughs> formal, but uh, maybe I, if you want me to sing the song at the end, uh, you know, I, I can definitely sing the chorus and, and the bridge. So, you know, I just pull up the words so I, I don't mess up. Oh, are you serious? You really would? Yeah, I don't, I don't see it. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> if you'll back me up. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> I'm pulling up the words. You're the lead, though. Okay. <laughs> we did Spice Girls Wannabe at karaoke. Oh. That's more my style. I love that song. Yeah, I'm going to tell you what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, yep. I want to really, really, really want to sing a sick guy. That is so funny. Okay, here we go. Five, six, seven, eight. Some times in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. But if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody, somebody to lean on. Lean on me. Lean on me. So just call on me, brother, when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you'll understand. Cause we all need somebody to lean on. Lean on me. One more time. When you're not strong, they'll be your friend. <laughs> I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. Woo! So good! <laughs> I think I can die happy now. People already think I'm crazy that I went to Washington, D.C. and that I got a Secret Service officer to come be on my podcast. And not only that, he karaoke'd. <laughs> okay, how, how did you start this podcast about compassion? Tell me that whole backstory. How did I start it? Yeah. Okay, so I started struggling with PTSD from my childhood, having anxiety and depression when I was 21. I'm 29 now. And I went through years in and out of getting on medication and going to counseling, but I always wanted to get off medication because growing up, my dad was diagnosed with bipolar and he never found medicine that worked for him. And so I saw his life and he really struggled a lot, especially having kids. I have two kids and it wasn't until things got so bad that I became humble enough where I had a therapist say, you know, I really think you're one of the cases that you might permanently need medication. That was really humbling, but good for me to give that up and to give that up to God. And I really feel like it was the compassion and connection of other people that saved my life over and over again. So I started a podcast because I feel like as a culture, we're pretty disconnected. And I think that there's power that comes when we connect and when we share compassion with other people. I saw that happen in my own life. I saw when people showed up and when they listened to me and when they just were there with me in my pain, it was truly life-saving. That's something I want to spread. Amen. 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 I agree. Nowadays, it's all too easy to not learn or to 
expand on our social norms because we just send a text or, or Facebook message or a phone call and then we'll think that that's real strong communication, but that's not. The real strength in communication is the face-to-face human interaction. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today. Charles. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Julie. I would not have thought that I would start my week with meeting awesome people from Oregon and Utah and then being invited onto a podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Oh, that was great. Thank you, Officer Charles White. You made my day. Thank you again to our sponsor for the month of November, Tony Overbay, my friend and host of the Virtual Couch podcast. Check out his free ebook and discover the five common mistakes Christians make attempting to break free from pornography addiction and other compulsive sexual behaviors. You can also download a copy of it at his website, thepathbackrecovery.com, and all his other amazing work at tonyoverbay.com. If you loved him in episode 38, When Your Marriage is Hurting, go check out what else he has to offer. Next week, my guest is a friend who has helped me in my own time of crisis. I give you two words, medical school. We're talking about medical school next week. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you.